Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Recorded live. When a vet comes home, the silences can be deafening. You may not know what to say, but we can help start the conversation. Visit supportyourvet.org. A public service message brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. Walking to an afternoon meeting, Charlotte reached for the stairwell door. That door is blocked, Bill said. But Charlotte had used it an hour earlier. Ignoring Bill's caution, she pushed it open. The next sound they heard was the crash of the door hitting a workman's ladder, then a paint can hitting the floor. No need to repeat the painter's reaction. Bill turned to a wide-eyed Charlotte and said, I warned you not to open the door. This is Howard Butt, Jr. of Laity Lodge. Good advice does no good if we refuse to listen. The breakdown has something to do with pride. Attentive ears can prevent some colorful message in the high calling of our daily work. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We've been married 38 years, we're retired, and this is how we live united. We play golf and we travel, but we also decided we were going to give to and volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. I do the nursing at the clinic. I work the front office, checking in patients, greeting them, making them feel comfortable. United Way is how we contribute, because we know our time and money are going to the right places the places that need it most and implement it best. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We even get a few bless yous. It's incredible. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic, so we don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live united. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. This is Ann Graham Lotz with Daily Light for Daily Living. All around us are broken homes, broken hearts, broken hopes. But God never intended us to be broken. He didn't just create us, plop us down on planet Earth and say, Happy birthday, now you can guess your way through life. God as our creator has specific directions for our lives. Psalm 119.2 says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with a whole heart. If we live according to his directions, our lives work. We're blessed, and we experience life the way it was meant to be lived. If we ignore or reject his directions, we do so to our own detriment and experience much less than he intended. His directions form a pattern that prevents breakage of our lives to help mend the brokenness already present. Listen to me. Trust in his word, then follow his directions. Your life will work. This is Ann Graham Lotz. This is Morning Inspirations 
with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
saying thank you. Thank you for last night's slumber and sleep. Thank you, Lord, for looking us up early this morning. Starting our day with you. We lift up those, Lord, who's in who's behind prison walls. Lift up those, Lord, in psychiatric wards. Lift up those in hospital and hospice. Nursing homes everywhere. We lift up those, Lord, who don't know what to do. Those who are struggling, Lord, we lift them up to you as well, Lord, struggling financially and physically and mentally. We lift up those, Lord, who don't know you to pardon their sins. Lift up those, Lord, our children. Those Lord who get ready to go to school, go to work this morning. God protect them. Cover them with your wings, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Heal us, Lord, for any sins that we've done, knowingly and unknowingly. Lift up those, Lord. We need you. Financial or physical or whatever this needs. Lord, to meet their needs. That's our people, Lord. Those people who pastor. Except those, Lord, our men and women all forces, our men, our men and women in uniform. Except those, Lord, the children of Ethiopia. Body water. Just of our children in America, ghettos. Just up government, you Lord. Just up those, Lord. Don't know you to part in their sins. Pray that they come on in. Know you, get with you, get you to pray, and talk to you. Bless, bless Lord. God protect us, cover us with your wings. Bless the Lord. Hello, the Winter Olympic Games in Sochi are nearly over, and it's been a major showcase, not only for the Games, the most expensive ever staged, but also for Russia itself and its sport-loving president, Vladimir Putin.
Mr Putin clearly hopes these games will help to build a strong nationalist identity, an ambition some say is aided and abetted by a populist new law banning the promotion of homosexuality. Another key ally in the advancement of that nationalist agenda is the Russian Orthodox Church, of which Mr Putin is a member. In today's Beyond Belief, we examine the changing role of religion in today's Russia. 80% of Russians are baptized members of the Orthodox Church, though surveys suggest less than 10% attend services. How is its influence expressed, both culturally and politically? Is the state making space for religious freedom, or is it using the church for its own purposes? And what are the other Christian denominations and faith traditions? What role do they play? in Mr. Putin's Russia. To help us explore all of that, I'm joined by Zania Denon, chair of the Kestin Institute for the Study of Religion in Former Communist Countries, Vera Toltz, professor of Russian studies at Manchester University, and Father Andrew Phillips, a priest with the Russian Orthodox Church abroad. Vera, how important is religion in today's Russia? Religion is extremely important, both in governmental rhetoric, because uh, the community which uh, particularly Putin's government is uh, trying to build in Russia uh, is identified through belonging to a, a particular uh, religious community. Among uh, the population at large, people also identify with a particular religion, the majority of people, uh, but uh, very often it is... A, cultural identification with a cultural heritage uh, rather than religion per se. Father Andrew, what's the relationship between the Russian state and the Russian Orthodox Church? Well, as you know, um, during this communist period, there was a very vicious persecution of the church. 200,000 priests, monks and nuns were slaughtered. 600 bishops shot and tortured to death. 75 years it lasted. In the last 25 years, um, we've seen the state and the church as two circles which are independent, but also, of course, inevitably intersect, overlap to some extent. Um, there is a certain tension. Um, the, church the state has one view of the church, but the church has quite a different view of itself. Um, the church is 62 different nationalities, and therefore it's very difficult for the state to try and tie down the church to a particular nationalistic vision. And Zena, what, what of President Putin himself? As I say, he's a member of the Orthodox Church. What's his attitude to religion and to the church? I think the church is extremely important for his, uh, uh, for his position of power. I think he needs the church. Um, I think also the church needs Putin. So there is a sort of mutual benefit. Uh, but I think there's room for a good deal of criticism at the same time. Well, that's a fairly high-altitude perspective on religion in Russia today. Let's get a bit more detail into our understanding uh, with some historical perspective. Vera, let's step back to the end of 1991, the collapse of the Soviet era. What was the place of religion in Russia at that time? Um, as Father Andrew mentioned, uh, the history of the church in the Soviet period it was the history of persecution, and that affected the position of the church in 1991. The sort of rehabilitation of religion, in a way, started in 1988 under Mikhail Gorbachev only. And as a persecuted uh, institution, uh, at the end of the Soviet period, the church uh, actually had a lot of trust and respect on the part of the population. At the same time, the press opened up and so some revelations about behind-the-scene collaboration of the church with particularly the infamous uh, uh, secret police, the KGB, 
start to be publicized in the press. But I don't have a sense that it tainted the, the image of the church particularly strongly at the time. Daniel? I think we should be aware in the Soviet Union there were different positions. There was the 1927 agreement with the state between Metropolitan Sergei and the then communist leaders. Uh, there were many members of the Orthodox Church who did not agree with that position, mm -hmm. and you had that expressed in a very important letter from the bishops on, in the main prison for church people on the Solovki Islands, claiming that this sort of relationship did not conform with church norms. So there are different attitudes amongst Orthodox Christians. There are some significant laws we need to talk about, and some dates, 1990 being a very key date. Andrew, you've just been describing appalling persecution over many, many decades. Then we come, Vera, to religious freedom and to a law enshrining religious freedom. The first decade uh, after the collapse of uh, communism, there was indeed the period of uh, unprecedented religious freedom and almost complete withdrawal of the state from any control of the religious sphere. Uh, and then the situation changed in 1997 with the introduction of uh, a new law. Uh, it was still Yeltsin's period, it's pre-Putin. This uh, law was very controversial and uh, it has been widely believed that uh, it was introduced on the initiative of the Russian Orthodox Church. And that creates and a kind of two-tier approach to religion. In a way it does, uh, yes, it uh, demands the registration of all religious organizations uh, so that if they want uh, to sort of be active on the territory of Russia, and this registration could be awarded only to um, religious organizations which operated in Russia's territory and had kind of an official presence on Russian territory for the previous 15 years, which is 1982, so the Soviet period uh, of very restrictive attitude. We're, we're, we're mentioning a lot of dates, thing. but we, the, we need to get these dates the, straight. The two-tier thing is important to bring in at this yeah. stage. The, the category of what is described as traditional religions, which actually in the law is Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and Buddhism, but it has come to be interpreted and accepted that the traditional religions are the Russian Orthodox Church. No, I won't Islam, agree with Buddhism. that. I won't agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that uh, it's, uh, if you look at the ceremonies, uh, you will always, almost always see not just uh, an Orthodox priest or patriarch present, but you'll have uh, Islam. Uh, no, Muslim, absolutely. Muslim. No, no, I'm, not, I'm saying uh, there so are no other Christian religions. No, oh, no. That's yes, what I'm saying. Yes, exactly. It's now yeah. Orthodoxy, Islam, Buddhism. Yeah, These exactly. are seen as the four founding faiths yeah. of yeah. Russia. So in the law, it's Christianity, but in the uh, accepted interpretation of that law, it has become Russian Orthodox. Well, how do you explain that move from a period of unprecedented religious freedom to a more restrictive approach to law? Andrew? Um, I think in the 1990s, we went through this period of absolute chaos, anarchy, and in 1997, the government felt it had to regulate. Um, on the one hand, there were large numbers of evangelical missionaries coming from the United States, and they were felt somehow to be undermining Russian identity. There was a sort of merger of national culture, national identity, and religion. I think also there were a number of sectarian, um, totalitarian cults and sects, which actually did a lot of damage, and there did need to be some kind of regulation, just as there is in Western countries, regarding these sects. Daniel? I sympathize with the Moscow Patriarchate in the light of all this influx of 
foreign missionaries. I also support uh, religious freedom, but I, I do think there was a need to uh, restrict that sort of total... Um, chaos. <laughs> it was chaos, you think? There were problematic instances, and certainly with this uh, kind of uh, new age uh, groups which involved vulnerable people in basically self-harming yeah. activities. But I, I think one of the main reasons, and we should be honest about it, was that the church felt a little bit sort of threatened by the competition. You see this 1997 law as an attempt by the state to give protection to the Russian Orthodox Church in the face of religious competition. Uh, I think that was an element of that. And definitely. there was a lot of pressure from the Moscow Patriarch yeah. on yeah. the government yeah. to get this law yeah. through. And I remember yeah. going to discussions yeah. in from 1996, yeah. 1995, yeah. where this was being pushed. You know, we've got to keep out some of these, uh, what they would see as totalitarian. I think there's a case of mutual interest here. On the one hand, the state wanted to protect the people and protect itself. On the other hand, the church was also concerned about the kind of bribery techniques which were being used. Classically, people were being given a dollar bill, at that time a fortune, to go to a stadium and listen to a preacher from the United States. Um, it was dishonest. Andrew, what about the Russian Orthodox Church today with Patriarch Kirill at its head? Is it now de facto the established Church of Russia? No, it's not. Um, last year, we put forward 28 new laws in which we, which we wanted to see. The state listened to us on one account. It rejected 27. We've got to remember we're in a post-Soviet state. It's not a really Russian state. Um, the post-Soviet state wants to make use of the church, and it pays lip service to the church, but the reality is um, very little. Except the leaders are there. Um, they make sure they're there at all the main feasts. They make their adherence to the Moscow Patriarchate an important part of their political image. Lip service. You think it just, it's just that there is a word in Russian for literally just putting a, a person puts a candle, a podsvichnik. I think that's what you mean. Yes. Yes, do you think the state is using the church for its own political purposes? Yes, I do. I think it's actually a sign of Putin's weakness. At the uh, Valdai conference, it's a very beautiful bit of Russia near Novgorod, he, uh, Putin was using the rhetoric of the patriarch about tr Russian traditional values, Russian national values. To me, that's an indication that he needs the church to support his political position. And speaking of a common purpose between the state and the church. I would say, yes, but during Putin's third presidency, uh, where the government is clearly weak and looking for kind of new ideology to prop it, uh, itself up, the church is more important to the state than ever. At the same time, I don't think it's helpful to describe the Russian Orthodox Church as a state church or official church. It was a state church in the pre-revolutionary period, and so it has a specific meaning uh, in the Russian context, and the relationship between the church and state is completely different today. It yeah. wouldn't be in the interest of the church to be a state church. Well, you mentioned the third presidency of uh, Vladimir Putin, and when he made the announcement in 2011 that he'd be running again, there were demonstrations, there were street demonstrations. What was the Russian Orthodox Church's response to that unrest? At the time of the unrest, the Russian Orthodox Church, or more explicitly, uh, Patriarch Kirill, directly endorsed Putin as a candidate and urged Orthodox believers not to attend oppositional demonstrations. And that was a very controversial move, which provoked a lot of criticism. Why did he do that? 
because to a large extent, Bajar Kirill is a shrewd politician, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a political step on his part. Uh, could, I, could I just add that so before that this. statement, fully supporting Putin, mm -hmm. he had come out at, in his Christmas broadcast saying, we must listen to the people. Uh, the government must listen, and it was a very different position from what happened, I think, in February. Andrew. I, I know Patriot Kirill personally. The head of the Russian He is a very shrewd um, politician. He knows exactly what he's doing. I think, above all, when the demonstration started, the church was extremely worried because, at the same time, there were attacks on the church, which were carefully orchestrated, and it was quite clear that the church was very worried that there was a danger of another revolution, another 1917, and uh, it saw, I think, many people saw Putin as the lesser of two evils. It's not that people particularly like Putin, but they do see him as a, a mild alternative to some of the horrors that could replace him. He does project a certain kind of image, doesn't he? The virility of uh, President Putin, his strength, sometimes cold focused on his agenda. That's the impression that he gives to some people. And his critics say, of course, that he's autocratic. Does the Russian Orthodox Church prefer an autocratic leader? Um, given the experience of history, no, because uh, so many people have lost their lives from autocratic leaders. Um, President Putin himself, I know a priest who confesses him, and he does have a chapel in his own home. He is a sincere believer but he's not a terribly theologically educated person, and he does try and make use of the church, and the church resists that. Where do you stand on this, Vera? Uh, I, I think that the uh, Russian Orthodox Church has no experience of interacting with a democratic government. There is simply no historical experience. So I can't imagine that the hierarchy of the Russian Orthodox Church is really wishing uh, liberal democratization for Russia. They will know how to operate in that system. Well, let me remind you that you're listening to Beyond Belief, and today I'm discussing religion in Russia today with Zenia Denin, Vera Toltz, and Father Andrew Phillips. The build-up to the Sochi Games were dominated by international controversy because of a new law banning the promotion of homosexuality. The Church approves of that law, with some wanting the state to go even further, to recriminalize homosexuality. To find out what it's like to be gay in Russia today, I've been talking to Anton Kuzman, who's 28 years old and a member of the Methodist Church in St. Petersburg. I was brought up in the non-religious family. As many other people in my country, we, my parents were just nominally orthodox. And so in my family, we never talked about uh, religion or God or Jesus Christ or other religions in like a deep level. But I remember myself uh, when I was 15, I started reading a children's Bible. And uh, I suddenly became very interested in this idea of religion and Christianity. So I, I think that's when and where my spiritual path of searching started. How did you come to think of yourself as gay? Well, I knew that I was that person uh, when I was 10, but I didn't know the word gay. But when I learned that word homosexual, I think I was about 15, 14. I thought this, this is a horrible thing because I wanted to have a family, to have children, to be as normal as all other my friends and people around me. And I expected that if people learn about my homosexuality, I would be very much um, disturbed and I would not have peace. And uh, among my friends also, this was not uh, a good thing for a guy to be like. I know you're part of an LGBT believers group. Who else is involved in that? What is it trying to achieve? 
There are there are several people in this group, and uh, some of them are Christians, some of them are Buddhists, and others are post-Christians, as they call themselves. There's one person who is Orthodox. And what we're trying to do, basically, is we're trying to be together, being homosexuals or bisexuals, because in our churches we cannot be open. And we want to take a look on the Bible and religion in that point of view that homosexuality is okay. So we're trying to talk about it, and we're trying to pray for each other, and we're trying to enlighten other people. And while you're doing that, there's a raging debate going on in Russia amongst churches and in the state more generally about homosexuality. Yeah, because now we have, uh, we have legislation that puts homosexuality as a, almost a criminal thing. And of course, churches uh, make their statements, public statements, and sometimes it's very, um, it's very aggressive. What kind of aggression are you thinking of? Uh, it starts from just offensive words to approving acts of violence towards homosexuals. And it also, it always goes from the people who are representatives of the church, of the Orthodox Church, of course, because they think that this is the biggest thing of all sins, and homosexuals are bringing Russia to hell. There are certainly some voices within the churches and in the Orthodox Church calling for a change in the law to recriminalize homosexuality. That's, that's true, exactly. They are trying to, to make this uh, a topic for discussion, but it's not like a religion thing. I think it's more like a political thing because Orthodox Church right now and politics in Russia are working close together. Do you think life will get better for you, Anton, when President Putin finally steps down? Well, definitely my life would be better because uh, there would be a new hope for changes. But uh, still the problem is not in the government. I think the, the big part of the problem is in the society itself. Anton Kuzman, a young gay Christian living in St. Petersburg. Andrew, let me get your reaction to that. Is Anton's experience a moral indictment of the church's attitude to gay people in Russia today? Not at all. Um, first of all, I think there is the situation of a post-Soviet society. Um, homosexuality was banned in the Soviet Union. Um, it was legalized in the 1990s. And there is considerable prejudice in society, just as there was in this country 20, 30 years ago, and in many places there still is, against homosexuals per se. So you have, for example, one or two gangs of thugs who will try and beat up um, homosexuals, but obviously these are, are criminals. Um, I've only actually heard one church spokesman asking about the possibility of recriminalizing homosexuality. I don't think it's typical. Vera, what do you think of this? Is the church driving this kind of agenda, or is it reflecting public opinion? I don't think that the church is driving this agenda. I think in the church, probably quite a few leaders of the church and the priests support this campaign. Uh, but the origins of the campaign, I think, have nothing to do with the church. Uh, uh, it was introduced as uh, part of several changes uh, during Putin's third presidency. And uh, uh, the aim of this campaign is to channel uh, people's dissatisfaction away from the Kremlin uh, onto usually vulnerable groups in society against whom there is widespread prejudice. Well, if this is a distraction measure to distract people away from Kremlin politics, it's not the first time we've seen this, of course. People have pointed to immigration and to the, the role of Islam within Russian society as other issues where the government has played 
politics uh, around distraction. Uh, Xenia, tell me about the, the experience of Muslims. In well, I, I think the whole subject of Islam is obviously a very important one within the Russian Federation. Um, you do need to distinguish between the traditionally uh, Muslim peoples, the Bashkirs and the Tatars, and distinguish them from the North Caucasus. And there's this big division between more extreme Islam and, and traditionally moderate um, Islam of the Bashkirs and the Tatars who've always lived together with, with Russian Orthodoxy and other religions. And the government makes that distinction between uh, well, extremism and moderate Well, I think officially Putin is very much pushing for preserving the, the Federation and, as uh, Vera said, holding together these many different ethnic groups. But, of course, there were demos. There was a, a big attack on, on um, particularly people from the North Caucasus running... Um, trading in southern Moscow, and there were racial, ethnic conflicts. It's a very dangerous and something that is uh, an important and, and frightening aspect of today's Russian... And just to put this on the table, we're talking about 6-7% of the Russian population are Muslim, today, Muslim and it's a growing population. Um, growing through demographics, yes. They produce more children than... Uh, However, it's growing, it's growing. <laughs> yeah. I, I think this question, actually, the attitude towards Islam and uh, migration have to be put in a pan-European context. Mm -hmm. Russia shouldn't be sort of singled out because uh, there are anti-Muslim, anti-Islamic uh, sort of fears across Europe, not just in Russia. Now, specifically to Russia, uh, what is happening, that uh, the official uh, rhetoric is very, very careful and it's emphasized that Islam is part of historical heritage, heritage of Russia. At the popular level, uh, there is growing, I would say, phobia of Muslims, not necessarily Islam as religion. Uh, very different, as Ksenia said, uh, um, attitude uh, towards Tatars and Bashkirs. Uh, on one hand, it's uh, Muslim population of the Volga region and North Caucasus. Uh, animosity towards people from North Caucasus and also migrants from former Soviet Central Asia is high. The reasons are the ongoing conflict in the North Caucasus, and if, uh, in that context, is there is a fear of radical Islam yeah. sort of spreading in Russia. And what about the media? What's the media's yes, role in that? The media's role is huge in that debate, as actually it is the case uh, across Europe, including Britain. It can be very counterproductive, the contribution of the media. It spreads uh, fears of Muslim population and presents Muslims as others, non-European, who cannot integrate, who have uh, behavioral norms which offend uh, the local population. And Andrew, I, I quite agree with what Deer has been saying. Three years ago, I was at a reception with um, Patriarch Kirill at the Cathedral of Christ the Saviour. It was his name's day, St. Kirill's day. Um, there were the two grand rabbis of uh, Moscow, Muslim representatives um, in their dress, the Buddhist representatives. No problems at all. Um, the great fear in Russia is what's been happening in the Caucasus, the Saudiization or Wahhabization on, of young people, their radicalization, in other words, exactly the same parallels we have um, in this country, whether it's in Crawley or Bradford. Um, this is the real fear. Fear. What I think is sort of uh, a difference between, let's say, British media and the Russian media. Uh, very often when there are conflicts between, uh, let's say, uh, Muslims and non-Muslim population in any country, the origins of conflict is very often social, economic, it's not ethnic, it's not religious. And it's the media which presents it as a religious conflict. Yeah. And unfortunately, in the last 18 months, 
the state-controlled Russian television, the main source of information for the majority in the country, start blurring the line between Islam and radical Islamism. And that's a new development. Let, let me bring you on to uh, another important aspect of, of, of this landscape. Uh, it's partly prompted, I think, by the rise in uh, missionary activity in the 90s after this period of religious freedom, the Americanization of some of these religious traditions, you might say, but also a new focus on social action, social justice, making a difference to people's lives. And although those new traditions became a threat to the Russian Orthodox Church, they did learn that new emphasis, didn't they? I think so, and from the Roman Catholics as well as from Protestants. Yeah. In my travels through the Russian Federation, I'm deeply impressed, actually, by Orthodox parishes and their development of social care I came across in Kuzbas in November a remarkable orthodox um, community of 100 laywomen who are specializing in the care of drug addicts. And drug addiction is extremely widespread in the Russian Federation. So I think there definitely is um, an area in which the orthodox are learning from what I would call their brethren in the Catholic and the yes. Protestant churches. Now what happens in, in countries like Britain, of course, is that some church leaders who are focused on those social action and social justice concerns, Andrew, will often make comments about government policy, where it begins to impact upon people's lives. Do you see any example of a kind of prophetic stance by the Russian Orthodox Church in respect of government policies? Absolutely. Criticizing the government. A absolutely. Um, um, it doesn't tend to be reported in the media, but um, on the basis on which I meet it in parishes and with ordinary believers, very much so. Um, I had this conversation only last Sunday in my own parish, people saying, well, why doesn't the government support Russian mother mothers? Um, we only have one child or two children. Um, Putin says one thing, but he does absolutely nothing in support of the family. Um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, people now have to pay for health care, they have to pay for education, and this is a huge problem for Russians. And here is an opportunity for the church to take over whole swathes of the education and health system. There are hundreds of thousands of Orthodox doctors, nurses, teachers who would love this. The problem is it's the resistance with the post-Soviet Russian Federation state. Um, there are still plenty of bureaucrats there who were there in Soviet times, and they see no role for the church. Well, we're nearly out of time. Let me end by asking all of you about the future. How might the religious landscape of Russia change over the next few decades? Very briefly, obviously, it's a big high-altitude question. Andy, what do you think? I think um, things are on a knife edge. Um, it could go one way or the other. Um, one way towards uh, 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 continue to be a post-Soviet system, or else go towards a Russian Orthodox system. Vera? If Russia becomes the Russian Orthodox country, it will fall apart. It has to have pluralism, religious pluralism, in order to stay together. But the role of religion will be only growing. Thank you. I suppose I'm a hopeful person, and I see this uh, democratic uh, movement, which was expressed through the demos in 2011-2012, as something that is there underground and will continue, and with that movement towards democracy, the demand for religious liberty and uh, the rule of law will reflect on the more, I hope, tolerance within the Russian Orthodox Church. And there we must leave it. My thanks to Zenia Denon, Vera Toltz and Father Andrew Phillips. Ernie Ray will be back with another edition of Beyond Belief at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
Listening to Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 
Drawing Block Radio. Turn it up.
Satan's methods, there's nothing new. Answers with Ken Ham, whose ministry is building a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati, Ohio. The Apostle Paul warned us about Satan's ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul warned the Christians that Satan would use the same tactics he used on Eve in the Garden of Eden. And how did he trick Eve? Well, he created doubt about God's word, knowing it would lead to unbelief. Did God really say that? Satan asked Eve. You know, that's the same question many Christians ask today about Genesis. Did God really say six days? Did he really say worldwide flood? Did he really say death came after sin? One of the most effective ways to create doubt about God's word is by teaching evolution in millions of years. And Satan knows that if you can get people to question the book of Genesis, which is foundational to the rest of the Bible, then this doubt will ultimately lead to unbelief regarding the rest of Scripture. We need to accept God's words in Genesis and not let the devil use his old tactics to spread skepticism about the entire Bible. Can we really accept the book of Genesis as true history? Did Noah really build an ark to escape a flood? Solid answers are given in our 95-page pocket guide, and for your copy, all you have to do is call us toll-free and make a donation of any amount. 1-888-89-ANSWERS. Today's the last day to call and request the ARC guide. So call 888-89-ANSWERS or go to our website of AnswersOffer.org. My name is Dale Pazinski. I'm 19 years old, and this is how I live united. I've always been kind of a computer geek, and I found a way to use those skills to help the homeless in my community. For people facing hard times, computer skills and a basic resume are so important. It may seem like a small thing, but it makes a huge difference in people's lives. So with United Way, I created a program where I work with the homeless. Together, we go through their whole job history, write a resume, and then save it on the very own USB drive. We provide workbooks and training certificates. I even budgeted for cupcakes so we can celebrate as a class when one of our people gets a job. That's huge. When somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. That's what Living United feels like to me. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Can a landlord legally evict a church from leased space? With a word of caution for today's pastors, here's attorney David Gibbs Jr. of the Christian Law Association. An expanding church decided to lease space in a nearby building to use as an activity center for their youth. The contract they signed allowed them to provide education, recreation, and community service. A few years later, the church decided to switch buildings with the youth and have their main worship in the leased building. When the landlord learned that worship services occurred in the building, the church was given an eviction notice. The church contacted the Christian Law Association, believing that religious discrimination was occurring. After reviewing the documents, one of our attorneys advised this wonderful church that this was not a case of constitutional discrimination. The church had simply violated their written lease agreement. If it's been a while since you've been to our website, you really ought to check it out. ChristianLaw.org is a virtual tool shed of legal tools, legal advice for pastors and ministries, answers to difficult questions, links to helpful PDF files, and much more. So check it all out at ChristianLaw.org. ChristianLaw.org. 
You are listening to Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 
I'm sorry, that's uh, Manic Drive and Good News. This is your early morning gospel program, morning inspirations, getting you up and out for your to, to start your day. Bye. 
him when he kicked him out of heat. There wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. His return is very close, and so you better be believing that our God is an awesome God. Uh-huh. 
have to pay the price for all the wrong things that I've committed against God and against man. I believe that on the third day, by the power of God, you were raised from the dead as living proof that my trust in you tonight is not in vain. I believe that as Christ was raised from the dead, so tonight, Almighty God, you are raising me from the dead, from the death of sin. You are giving me a new life, the life of Jesus Christ. Oh God, on my testimony and the belief in my heart and according to your word, at this moment, I believe I am saved. I am saved. I am saved. Hallelujah. Saved. Saved. Oh, let me ask you, friends, in closing tonight, have you done this? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you come to that obedience of faith? Have you come to that place of true repentance and true faith? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? And are you trusting alone tonight in Jesus Christ for your salvation? For there is no other way, there is no other message. For there is no other way, there is no other message. Oh, come to him, come to the Saviour tonight. Come to him just as you are. Come to him in your sin. Come to him in all your needs. And cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. And cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. And cast yourself totally to him. You too will enter into that joy of sins forgiven, peace with God, and eternal, abundant life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. How can I say thanks for the things you have done for me? Things so You gave your very life for the voices of a million angels could not express my gratitude. All that I Give it all to thee. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. For the 
my life. Let it be pleasing, love to thee. And should I gain any praise, let it go to Calvary. With his
Sam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.